So yeah, as you know, we, we've done this, we you know, read the verses already this morning about the story of Jacob and Laban, and you know, look a little bit deeper into them uh, right now. Um, but so last week, if you were here last week, I framed kind of this relationship between Jacob and Laban as like this battle between these two, you know, heavyweight boxers of deceit. And, you know that that they're 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 going after each other. They're both manipulators, and they both you know deceive one another. And we talk about Jacob, like for example, Laban winning round one by by getting Jacob to marry the wrong girl, right? And then and then Laban actually won round two because you know the negotiation about Jacob's wage kind of Laban got the best of Jacob and didn't there. But then Jacob stormed back in round three and he converted uh, Laban's flocks into his own. And in round four, Jacob manipulated his wives and got them to see that it was time to leave. And they were able to leave without Laban's knowledge. And so we left last week kind of with the score tied 2-2. And now the exciting conclusion of Jacob versus Laban battle royale. I was thinking it was a little bit like, um, I love watching those movies, you know, where... You don't know who's a good guy and who's a bad guy. It just seems like everybody's just double-crossing each other, right? And and this was like one of those movies. And, I, and I, as I was reading this week and over the last couple of weeks, reading this story over and over again, I'm wondering like this may have been providing some entertainment for the ancient Hebrews, right? Like they didn't they didn't they, didn't, they couldn't pop in Mission Impossible six or seven or whatever they're on right now. They couldn't pop that into the DVD player. So I'm wondering if, you know, they'd gather around the campfire and the kids would be like, Dad, tell us a story about Jacob and Laban again. You know, and this, just, this high intrigue and drama. And uh, so, yeah, so so that's that's what we're looking at today. The, the exciting conclusion of Jacob versus Laban. Heavenly Father, I pray that you open up this passage and your word to us today, but really, truly, God, open up our hearts. Open up our hearts so we can see you, that we can be encouraged. Um, that we can be admonished, that we can be warned, that we can, that we can see you in your glory, and that you will be uh, the, the great counselor, comforter, keeper, uh, Holy Spirit, be present among us uh, in your word this morning. Amen. Before we get into the story, I think it's, uh, it's important to kind of just know and take note and discern at least where we think Jacob is in his spiritual life right now. Um, so reflect on where is Jacob in his spiritual life? Jacob, we know that Jacob was actually set apart for God's purposes before he was born. But before he had done any good or any bad, God said, this child, this one, the younger, is going to be the one for whom the promises of Abraham will be passed down. So Jacob, God knew Jacob, and he chose Jacob even before Jacob had done anything good or bad. Which is pretty much a good, good thing, because when Jacob was born, it seems, most of his entire life, he was the type of person that we would never expect God to choose. He, he came out of the womb, grasping onto his older brother's heel, and his whole life was him trying to usurp and take the place of his older brother. He was able to, when he was a young man, trick his brother and manipulate him into selling him the birthright, the right of the firstborn son for a pot of soup. Right? That's who Jacob is. He was, um, a little bit later on, when he's still a young man, he deceives his father into, into stealing the blessing from his older brother by dressing up as his older brother. It's a ridiculous story. 
You know, and it is kind of an entertaining, ridiculous story. He puts hair, like goat hair, on his body to, like, be like his brother's hairy skin. And his dad's like, uh, yeah, he, the voice is Jacob, but the skin is like Esau's. It's a funny story, but it shows the, the extent of Jacob's depravity, his sin, his deceit. And that's who he is. But then, to the point where, as a young man, he had so burned every bridge, so destroyed that relationship with his family, with his brother, that as a young man, he literally had to flee for his life from his family. I don't know anybody who has had that sort of situation in their family. He, He had to run for his life, just like I ran from that big Jason guy. He was running from Esau. And he ran from his life and his family. And his, at his lowest point, he couldn't even find a house to stay in. At his lowest point, he's in the wilderness outside of Bethel. And at his lowest point, he has no tent, he has no pillow, he has no sleeping bag, he has a rock for his pillow. And God meets him. And God says this to him. This to him. Now. Nathan. It works before the service, and I don't know why it doesn't work during the service. So, there he goes. And God says this to him, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land in which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west, and to the east, and to the north, and to the south. And then you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. So Jacob has this monumental experience of God and of God's promises. He's been a deceiver all his life, but here Jacob is aware of God's good will and his grace toward him. Jacob, I don't know, like later in Jacob's life, Jacob may have looked back at this, that, that moment at Bethel. In fact, continually God, when he meets with Jacob later, he says, I'm the God at Bethel. I'm the God that you met at Bethel. And so Jacob continually looking back at that moment in his life, like that's the time I met God, but his life doesn't really change over 20 years, or he gets dragged back into this I'm going to call it the land of Laban. Though he's met God, he's still living in this land where you get ahead by manipulating and deceiving one another. He's living in the world even though he has met this God. And he engages in 20 years of deceit and this contrast against Laban entangled in this manipulations suffering defeat after defeat until God speaks to him again in chapter 31, verse 3, and says, return, go back, return to the land of your fathers, the place of blessing. And so we begin our message today with Jacob again, twice now in his life, on the run from a family member. But this time, he's not so much fleeing the consequences of his own sin, but he's fleeing that land of Laban, that, that worldly exploitation, and he's he's running away from that, and he's running back to God's call, to God's land, to God's promise, to God. 
And so, I mean, this is a way how this, we have to get this because it, it colors how we interpret this passage a bit. This is how I understand what's happening in Laban's life. He, he's a follower of God. He has some understanding of how God has blessed him and protected him over the years. But he's lived most of his life as a follower of God, more captivated to the world's values and conflicts than the life God offers and provides. And maybe many of you guys can identify with Jacob in that way. And so this message I'm calling it, Get Behind Me Later. And it's a message about breaking free of those ties to the world that so easily entangle us. That's what I'm interested in the story with Jacob and Laban. There are principles, there's a paradigm here that extends beyond this. I don't want to just describe what is happening in this passage to you. You can read a commentary to do that. But God's doing something in Jacob's life spiritually here. And, and, and because the walk of faith is the same in every generation, there are some things that God may similarly be doing something in your life and that you might find encouragement and hope and courage to break from the bondage of sin and from the conflict that has brought you these many years. I want to talk actually quickly to um, I want to talk to like, I want to talk to the kids who came back from youth camp. And I want to talk to the kids who came back from Brooklyn. Jacob had this Jacob had this amazing experience of God at that time. Like he saw God. And then he went and he lived the next 20 years of his life in the entanglements of the world. Um, one of the kids, when we drove back from, from, from the camp yesterday, asked me about, asked me about baptism. Very excited about what God, God had done and how he, how, how they met God at, at the, at the Bible camp. And I said, well, you know, yeah, we can baptize you at any time. There's not an age limit. There's not, you know, but I said, one of the things is that you might want to think about is, you know, what, what is this life going to be like? What is this Christian life going to be like when you go back to school? What's this Christian life going to be like when you're trying to walk? Are you going to are you going to be so committed to Christ that you can? Is, there, is, is has God given you the faith to follow Christ? Where where you're you're, you're disentangling yourself, you're separating from those entanglements, and that's what is happening in this passage. Is Jacob's with God, and Jacob has wasted twenty years. And I know actually some of your guys' stories. I'm looking out actually at some of you guys, and I know some of your stories where you met God really powerfully, really young. You had an experience of God. God touched your life. God, you, you, may, you might have even seen God, and then you walked away for for decades, and now you're coming back, and you're like, man, those 20 years I wasted. And, and, and if you, and I know because you've told me that if you have one thing you can say to the other people is. Don't waste those 20 years. Follow God. Chase after him. And that's where Jacob's at. And so now, finally, he gets up in the middle of the night and he runs. It's like, God tells him, you've got to go back to Canaan. And Jacob gets up and he flees from like. And so that's where we're at. And I want to warn you, if you're there in your life, if you're at that point where you're like, I know I have been entangled in the values and in the sin and in the manipulations of the culture around me, I know that I've been entrapped by it, and I come to church this morning desperate to break free. I want to work through this passage with you. Okay? Because you don't have to waste any more decades. And uh, But you need to be warned about some things. You need to be encouraged by some things. 
And so, um, one thing, just, just to know, just to know, if you're there in your Christian life, you're like, I know God, and now I want to live free in God. I want to warn you first that it's not going to be easy. But the world, the flesh, and the devil are going to do all that they can to get their talents in you, to chase after you, and to bring you back to them. The first focus of this passage is on Laban's persistent pursuit of Jacob. Jacob, he wakes up, Jacob's been out shearing his sheep for three days. He comes back, and he realizes Jacob's gone, and he doesn't just say, well, it was a good 20 years of exploiting Jacob. No, he gets everybody in his household, right? He gets everybody in his household, and he chases Jacob down. And the text, even the commentators are saying, these numbers in the text where, where Jacob has a three-day head start and the uh, Laban catches up to him in three days, the commentators say, we don't understand how these numbers can work because it's such a quite long distance that they go. But the emphasis in the passage is that the Laban is storming after Jacob. He is chasing him with everything he has, with all his men, and he's angry, and he wants Laban back. And when he catches him, he uses every scheme he knows in order to gain control over Jacob again. That's what this whole thing's been about. It's been about the control of Laban the bully over Jacob. And so he comes and, for example, he uh, uses shame. He later says to Jacob, what have you done that you've tricked me and driven away my daughters like captain of the sword? And, and this idea of what have you done in scripture is carries with it. It's always used at this point where it's like, no one would have done such a thing. And he's saying to his son-in-law, what, 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 why would you do this? And he compares it to like a bandit or a pirate or like some sort of tyrant that just goes in and and these are Jacob's wives, and Laban's like, oh, what have you done? So he uses shame in order to get control over Jacob again. He says, uh, he uses flattery. This is the 27. So the first one is very accusatory. What have you done? But then at 27, he suddenly becomes Jacob's best friend again. Right? He uses flattery. Why did you preach secretly and trick me? Why did you tell me? I would have sent you away with mirth and songs and tambourine and lyre. Yeah, right. So he uses, he uses flattery to try to get under Jacob's skin. He uses, he uses pity. He uses pity. Why did you permit me to kiss my sons and daughters farewell? I'm an old man. They're my only kids. My grandkids. Trying to get Jacob to sympathize with them. He, he then uh, he uses threats. Right? Listen to this. Listen to how every like line is a different emotion. Why did you flee? I would have sent you out of birth and songs and tampering liar. And why did you permit me to kiss my sons and daughters? Fair off. Now you've done foolishly. It is in my power to do you harm. So what happened with mirth and tampering and timber and liar, right? Like and so he, he threatens me. He threatens me. And, and, and we're gonna get to this like we're gonna get this next, but and he taunts them. Like this verse 30, the Hebrew commentator is saying, he says, and now you've gone away because you've longed so greatly for your father's house. And that this word is like, it's over the top. He's making fun of them. He's like, you're just a homesick little boy that can't take care of yourself, aren't you? Jacob Laban is a master manipulator, and he's using everything in his arsenal to gain and to keep his control over Jacob. And that's the point. He's trying to Get under Jacob's skin. He's 
He's trying to not let him get him away easily. And you have to understand that Laban is just a person, he's just an expression of how the evil one works. The world, when you're, when you're saying, okay God, I'm here at your feet, God, I fall on my feet before you, use me, take me, keep me, I want you to know that you have an enemy out there who wants to dig his talents into you and keep you a slave to sin, keep you a slave to the world, to manipulate you. You know, this idea of like, you go on a diet, you're feeling convicted about gluttony, and then your coworker brings in like, oh, that goes to the Or you, uh, or you resolve to spend mornings in prayer, and your, or your, and your boss changes your work schedule. And I'm not saying your boss and your coworkers are, are like conspiring against you. What I am saying is that the moment you try to move forward in your spiritual life and make a true clean break from the past, you'll immediately find a road that once seemed so clear is suddenly littered with obstacles. I'm just going to tell a personal story uh, with this. Uh, I went out to, uh, my brother was sick, he suffers clinical depression, and uh, he was he's in a low, low spot. So, you know, at the, end, at the beginning of last month, I went out there. And I thought that going in, the biggest obstacle was going to convince him to leave when I got out there. That was my... That was my but my purpose was to get this, and he wasn't going to be able to survive where he was, and he needed to leave and come live by family. And actually, that was accomplished the first hour I was there. The first hour I was there, Brian decided he knew I've got to leave, and I've got to go, and I've got to be with family. First hour. The next ten days was just one thing after another, where Brian and I remarked, Brian remarked to me numerous occasions, it's like let no won't let me go. It's like Leadville won't let me go. You know, it was things like he turned in his uh, resignation at the job he was working at. He worked at a bar, and that night, this is the, when, when does this ever happen? That night, uh, three people came in from the other bar that's associated with three of the workers over there came in and started bullying them. I came in and was just like, "Are you Brian? Yeah. Oh, you're leaving in a week. Yeah." Oh, then you won't mind if I quickly do this. And they push them aside and they start to drink, they drink over $100 of alcohol. The Brian was just like standing at home. When he came home, he was devastated. And that was another roadblock. Um, you know, we, we get, we get all the plan ready and then we find out that his, he hadn't paid insurance and the insurance is expired. We get the insurance paid for it and then his car breaks down. And it's just, it's just literally, he turned to me time and time again, it was like, it's like the lead bill won't let me go. And, and I don't know if, I don't know if you've got experiences like that where you're like, I want to move forward. I want to make this, I want to make this turn. I want to take this turn. I want to move forward in my spiritual life. I, I make a decision at camp. I'm ready to follow Jesus. The world, the flesh, and the devil are our three enemies. The world is the system of lies all around us that don't submit to God's truth. The devil and his forces are actually actively spiritual enemies that attack us. And our flesh in us our own sinful nature that, that though it has been dead and though we are no longer slaves to it, those habits and patterns of our life still rear their ugly heads and they conspire against us to sink their talents into us and not let us be free moving forward into the land and the life that God has called us. So I want you to know that the Christian life is not a life of ease. There's difficulty and danger. And it's hard. 
But I also want you to know that the Christian is ultimately protected by Christ. So Laban, uh, within all Laban's manipulations and threats, he can't actually do anything to Jacob. And Laban referred, we saw him refer to, uh, before Laban caught up with Jacob, he actually had a dream on the, maybe the second day before he catches up with Jacob. And in Genesis 21-22, this is before Laban catches up to him. When it was told Laban on the third day Jacob's flood, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days, followed close after him in the hill country of Gilead. But God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful. It's very strong. Be warned. Not to say anything to Laban, to Jacob, either good or bad. It's clear that Laban setting out intended to do more harm. He was there. He had the means. He had the motive. He had the opportunity. And he even tells that right to Jacob's face. I could do you much harm. Except that your God has told me. That's all. And that's what the idiom means. The idiom basically means go easy on him, do him no, no, no harm. And so, so God restrained Laban with a warning, setting parameters of the amount of influence and damage Laban could cause. It reminds me of this passage of God's restraining of, of, of Satan in the book of Job. Remember the book of Job? Where uh, Satan tests, you know, Satan says, you know, you gotta put Job to this test, he's only worshiping you because God, Job only worships you, God, because you've given him everything. You take it away, and he'll deny you to your face. And God says, okay. The book of Job, and he says this. The Lord said to Satan, behold, he's in your hand. But he sets the parameter. Only spare his life. And it's important to know, Christian, that though the devil may rage against us when we forsake the ways of the world and the flesh, listen, the devil is still under the sovereign authority of God. And God sets the parameters of what he can do to us. He has no power to harm us unless the Lord himself allows it. Remember Jesus before Pilate. Remember Pilate? Jesus was not answering Pilate. And uh, Pilate says to Jesus, Don't you know that I have the authority to set you free or hand you over to deliver you to death? And Jesus says to him, you have no power over me. You have no authority over me. You have no authority over me except that which God has given you. God sets the parameters. And it doesn't mean that we're protected from every attack and consequence. We know Christians through history are persecuted. Christians through history are slaughtered. But we need not fear the one who can kill our body. We fear the one who can kill both our body and soul by sending us to hell. And so John, Jesus teaches this in John 10 and Matthew 10. Jesus says, the thief, the evil one, comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. But I came, Jesus says, that we might have life and have it abundantly. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for a sheep. Jesus says, listen. He can, the, the, the world flesh devil cannot touch you eternally. Though you flee from them, and though they try to get their talents into you, they cannot have victory over you. Because Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd, I protect you, I lay my life down for the sheep. Matthew, Jesus is teaching again, and he says, have no fear of them. 
Nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. Will I tell you into the dark, say into the light, will be your whispered proclaim on the housetops, do not fear those who kill the body but can't kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both the soul and body in hell. Aren't two sparrows sold for a penny? Not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Even the hair on your head are numbered. But so you might be very, very frightened that if you're like, I'm going to break from this life, I'm going to break from this life that I've had before. I've been living as a Christian, but I've been living one foot in church and in the world and in Christ. And I've been living with one foot in the land of Laban in the world. And you're like, if I take my foot out of the land of Laban, you know, the kids at school they're going to make fun of me. My friends at school they're going to they're going to say, you know, you used to do this. Why? You think you're better than us? My coworkers they might think. Hey, you know, now you're easy doormat to walk upon. My boss might say, hey, I can't count on you to do these immoral, non-ethical things that I wanted to have you do. It might lose your job, it might lose your promotion, it might lose your popularity, it might lose your prestige, but it will not lose your soul. And Jesus said, I lay my life down for you. I am a good shepherd. They can't touch you. They can kill your body. So I want you to know that Jesus is the shield. That Jesus is the protector. And this is going on here. Laban can't touch Jacob. But there's a warning here in this passage too. And then we're going from warning to encouragement back to warning to encouragement. Here, here's the warning. Christian, if you're thinking, well, you know, 20 years isn't that bad. I can, I can live here with one foot in the world. I can live here with one foot in Christ. There's a warning in this passage. The warning comes out here. There's no victory in continuing in the ways of the world. Jacob has been blessed and he's been protected all along. But we're, we see in this chapter, he's only fleeing as like a guy who's just escaping from the fire. He's singed. And, and I think this is the main lesson we're supposed to take from this issue with Rachel stealing Laban's God. Like, we, I, I promoted last week, like, this is some sort of big championship match, this battle royale. And Jacob's been playing this game for 20 years, but he comes so close to devastating and deadly consequences. And look what happens. Look at how Moses writes this. It's amazing. I'm sorry. Laban says to Jacob, why did you steal my gods? And Jacob answered and said to Laban, Because I was afraid, for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. <laughs> and then Jacob makes this vow. Anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live. In the presence of our kids, just point out what I have that is yours and take it. And Moses introduced here, so it's very clear to us. Now Jacob didn't know that Rachel had stolen them. And look at how Moses, this is like good storytelling. Okay, this is like master, uh, master in Christopher Nolan type filmmaking. This is Moses type storytelling. So this is how he builds up the tension. Jacob didn't know that Rachel had stolen him. And so Laban went into Jacob's tent. Now are the idols there? Kids? No. So Jacob went into Leah's tent. Are the idols there? No. And so Jacob went into the tents of the two female servants. Are the idols there? 
No, and so he didn't find them. And so he went out of Leah's tent, and he went into Rachel's tent, and now the kids around the campfire are like, oh, what's going to happen? Will Rachel be found out? Will Jacob's rationale come back upon his own wife? Uh, my in-laws like to watch the show. Uh, what's that show called? Watch? Uh, America's Got Talent, right? America's Got Talent. And so we were visiting this week, and on Wednesday night, or Tuesday night, one of us were watching the show. And there's this escape artist. And this escape artist is going to go into a tank. He's going to be chained up. He has to get out of the tank, right? Pretty normal day for an escape artist, right? So what your normal job is. Wake up, get into the tank, get chained up, escape before I drown. Um, but this escape artist did something different. This escape artist, uh, while he was trying to escape, his wife was being lowered into a pit of snakes. And so if he didn't escape on time, it's not only going to kill him, his wife is going to be bitten by one of these poisonous snakes. And you're watching this and you're like, huh, huh. Uh, and, you're, and, 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 and it was so tense that literally the you know the shows of those judges in the front. It was literally so tense that the judges paraded him. Like like after he said he's like ah, and the judges there's one judge who couldn't even look at him. She was like, "You're the most evil man I've ever seen. Go take your wife out for coffee. Don't dangle her over a pit of snakes." And she was so angry. And. Uh, and, and I'm just seeing here in this passage, and I was reading this passage, reflecting this passage, and it's just like, Jacob has been engaged in this worldly, you know, manipulation, battle of the sea for 20 years with Laban. And it's affected his family to the point where Rachel says, ha, ha, I'll jump in on that and do that too, and she steals the idols. And he comes within a sofa cushion of this having so deadly consequences, of this, of this game he's playing with sin and with the world, having deadly consequences in his family. He comes within a sofa cushion. You know, David lived with one foot in the world for a time. It cost him his reputation. It cost him his son's life. It cost him, it cost him unity in the kingdom. You can't listen, you cannot, we play this game where we think we can live one foot in Christ and one foot in the world, and we do not realize the devastating consequences, and perhaps even deadly consequences that they have upon our soul. And so beware, be careful. Like, this is why, please. The only power Satan has is the power we give him through fear. Back to the encouragement. And so Laban approaches Rachel's tent, and the tension is growing, and the story ends in a weird way, doesn't it? Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel saddle and sat on And Laban felt all about the tent, but he didn't find it. And she said to her father, Oh, let not my Lord be angry. I can't rise before you. The way of wind is upon me. And so he searched, but he didn't find the household gods. And, and so this, this is troublesome, though. If Rachel's actually scared, she's saved by another lie. She's scared by another cover-up. And I struggled with that, and it bothered me for a while. Still, you know. But, but I was reading some commentaries, and they were encouraging us to read this story through the eyes of the Jewish people reading this. 
And here's the idea. Laban is this big bully, right? This big, powerful bully. And But Laban serves these little dinky gods. Like the question that Laban uh, says to Jacob earlier in this, he goes, why did you steal my gods? That's a ridiculous question. Listen to a message yesterday. It was, it's a ridiculous question. Why did you steal my... Like he sounds like a whining little, little two-year-old. Why did you steal my gods? What kind of god do you serve that can be stolen? Right? Like, you little dinky trinket. And, and then it gets even funnier. And so if you're a Hebrew listening to this story, this is hilarious. Laban takes these gods that, you know, we're so scared about, these little trinkets, and she puts them into a camel set. And she sits on them. Jacob's gods are under, you know, Rachel's rump. Or Laban's gods, sorry, thank you, Rachel. Laban's gods are under Rachel's rump. And even, even, even more of a, uh, I don't know, just a mockery of these gods is then Jacob, Rachel's like, I can't get up, and I don't know if she's mine or not, but it's still pretty funny. She's like, I can't get up, I'm, I'm having a period. On top of... <laughs> Laban's gods. And so here's the point. And that would make the whole bed unclean and all this type of thing. You don't have to get weird. But here's the point. Laban seems like this big bully, but he serves these dainty little trinkets. And what we're supposed to take from this story with Rachel is not that she, why does she lie? She gets out of it. You're supposed to take Laban, who we thought was so scary, he's not so scary because his god Where then Jacob comes and he says, No, I serve the fear of Isaac. It's a it's a it's a name that's only used in this passage. It's a name that's only used in this passage in the Bible. I serve the fear of Isaac. I serve the God who can take away our life like that. I serve the God who gives us every breath, every second of our life, and he gives and he takes it away. And I serve that God. And so the only power that Laban had over Jacob is fear, and now it's broken. And now it's completely broken. Jacob had been so afraid of Laban. And that's my question. Why are we afraid? Why are we afraid of the world? Why are we so scared of the devil? If God is for us, who can stand against us? And I want to read the words of Martin Luther's mighty fortress, this verse. Martin Luther, and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness, for him, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word will tell him. Satan has no power over God's people except for intimidation and fear. The, in the cross, Jesus Christ has disarmed the rulers and the principalities and powers. He has disarmed them, according to Colossians. And listen, you have nothing to fear from the world flesh or devil for making a clean break from them. They're little trinkets of wood and a camel sack under Rachel's rug. Whatever you lose, you gain infinitely more in Christ. 
You may lose friends, but you gain a family. You may lose position, but you gain a purpose. And, and some of you, like just apologetically, you might say, that's still Rachel lied to get out of it. That's not right. And to that I would say this. We are messy people. And aren't you glad God doesn't treat us as it seems to do? Aren't you get glad that we don't always get what we deserve? We don't always get what, what we've got coming. And, and to the Christian, you should understand this, because this is the whole message of the gospel that we have been saved by grace. It is not by works that we have done. We all, in our sin, deserve to be, to have that death sentence passed upon us. And we all, in our sins, had earned the wrath of God upon us. Just like Jacob said, if you find it in any of our house, that person shall die. Know, and we know that Rachel stole the dogs. We have all done more than that. And aren't you so glad that God, in his grace, has sent his son, Jesus Christ? That Jesus Christ would come into this world, that he would take upon, he would live a life that we could not live, he would take upon himself our sin and the guilt that we had incurred, he took on and stood in our place under the wrath of God, that we might be forgiven, that we might be released, and that we might be free. Now, aren't you glad that God doesn't treat us as a sister? And so Rachel gets off scot free, and in a sense, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Because God sometimes does not give us as our sins deserve, and that there is true forgiveness and freedom in the cross of Jesus Christ. And so finally, the plea of today, even to my own heart, is this. Be separate from the world. Get behind me, Laban. That's a play from when, you know, Jesus is being tempted and Peter says, you don't have to die. And, and then Jacob, Laban. And then Jacob finally, Jacob's had enough. Laban has found nothing by going through the tents. And Jacob finally sees him for the miserable man that he is. And he no longer stumbles before Laban. He's no longer afraid. And he tears into him. And I don't have time to go through, you know, all the 20 years that I've served you and labored over you. And he basically says one thing to Laban. Get out of my face. He says to Laban, I have had enough. Get behind me, Laban. And Laban knows he's defeated. And he preaches God to him. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not come on my side, yeah, you would have beat me. You would have sent me away empty handed. But God saw the affliction and the labor of my hands, and he rebuked you last night. And get angry about your sin. Get angry about those things that have entrapped you into the world and rebuke them and renounce them and reject them in the name of Jesus. Say, I'm sick and tired of your days of popularity. I rebuke you in the name of Jesus. I renounce you in the name of Jesus. I'm not going to play that game anymore in the name of Jesus. I rebuke the gossip that I go to when I go to my workplace or I go to my school and I rebuke it and I renounce it and I put it away and I'm angry at it. And I'm sick and tired of this lust that I've been struggling with for 20 years. And I rebuke it, and I renounce it, and I proclaim Jesus' victory over it. Because Jesus died that I might be free, that I might be forgiven. 
And so you, 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 you make your mark and you renounce the works of the evil one in your life. You say, I reject all the works. We do this in our baptism. In our baptism, with the, the old ancient formulation would say, when you're being baptized, you say, I renounce all the works of the devil over me. Because it's a clean break. You can make, you don't have to be baptized to make that clean break. You can make that clean break many times. Say, I renounce this. I rebuke it. I reject it. No more. Get behind me later. And they set up a pillar of stone. And the pillar of stone, it means something different to both of them. Laban says to Jacob, see the secret pillar, which I've set between you and me. The seat is a witness, the pillar is a witness. I won't pass over the seat to you, and you will not pass over the seat. This pillar to me to do harm. The gods of Abraham, the gods of the Lord, the gods of their father judge between us. Not, uh, what's going on in this verse is not that. Laban suddenly become this highest guy. He, it, this should be a small g with an S, small g with an S, and small g with an S. He's a polytheist, and basically just saying, by all the gods, we'll separate. And, and, and Jacob does not swear by all these gods. Because even the gods of Abraham, just don't, don't think this is talking about Yahweh, this is talking about the gods that Abraham served before. And so, but Jacob does not play this game. He's done playing Laban's game. And Jacob says, no, no, I swear by the fear of his father Isaac. I swear by Yahweh, Jehovah, the Holy One. And they depart. And they have this pillar set up, basically saying, I'm done, I'm, we're done with this. We're done with this. We're done with the one foot in this camp, one foot in this camp. Here, this is the new, this is the new arrangement. I'm here, you're there. We do not cross this. That's the new arrangement. And Jacob has learned he can't have one foot in the world and serve this holy God. It had already cost him 20 years of his life. Listen, don't let it cost you 20 years of your life. Don't let it cost you another day. Don't let it cost you another day. If you know Jesus Christ, we are, we are called to holiness. This God, this God, the fear of Isaac, says to us, be holy for I'm holy. It says, come out from the world. Be separated from them. Not that, not, that we, not that we renounce all of our relationships, not that we have to cut our friendship, but when those friendships are, are keeping us from walking in God's way, we don't fear those who can kill the body. We fear the ones who can kill the body and soul. Be separate from the world. And his values, you know, get angry at your sin. Get behind me, later. Today, you know, today, if you need to take a pillar of stone, if you need to write a note in your Bible, if you if you need to today say, I'm saved to my addiction today, get behind me, later. I don't need you anymore, I have Jesus. If you have to write in your Bible, today I say to my tendency to, to please people and seek affirmation from others, I write my Bible, I get behind me, later. I, I don't need you anymore, I have Jesus. If it's pornography, you say, I, I, I'm writing in my Bible today. Today I'm writing in my Bible. I don't need you anymore, pornography. I'm saying, get behind me, Laban. I don't need you anymore. I have Jesus. If you're saying it to your critical spirit, you say, I don't need you anymore. I have Jesus. Whatever it is, today, come. It's an amazing offer that God has given us in this, in this, in this gospel. He has offered to us forgiveness and freedom. It's not going to be easy. You have an enemy who wants to take his challenge into you, not let you leave. But God will protect you 
God will carry you. God is bigger. And God is watching over your soul. And he'll bring you home. And one day our battle's over. One day he's going to renew this entire world. One day the devil and his minions are going to be kicked into the flame pit of hell. One day, one day, one day we can rest. It's not this day. Today we fight. Today we separate. Today we set up a pillar. Today we flee. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you, God. Your, your, word says, your word says this entire message very clearly when it just says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. God, I thank you for these stories. They're, they're very entertaining. They're filled with drama. God, they're easy to, to read and exciting to read. But God, I thank you, God, that you are the God of you're the fear of Isaac. You're the Holy One of Israel. You're the God who calls us to be, to, to be separate from the world flesh and death. You're the God who provides. You're the God who strengthens. You're the God who watches over. You're the God who protects. You're the God who, who ultimately will persevere our faith. You're the God who will make all things new. You're the God who is in heaven. All authority in heaven and earth have been given to your son, Jesus Christ. So who have we to fear? And so, Lord, I pray for each one of us who are gathered here today, that we might see you, we might see your glory, and that we might chase hard after you, that, that you might give us the faith to follow you this week, even as we have forgiven us our sins. Lord, we give you so much praise, and we need you. We desperately need you. So we call out to you, Lord. I pray that anyone in here, Lord Jesus, who doesn't know you as their Savior, I pray if there's anyone in here who does not yet know you as their Lord, Lord, right now, right now, right now, they may call out to you. They might say, Lord, I'm a sinner. I need your forgiveness. Lord, I've been playing in this game at school or at work. I've been, I've been, I've been walking in the ways of the world. Lord, I need to get out. Please free me. Lord, I pray that you bring salvation even into this room tonight. In the name of Christ. Amen.